Welcome to C's for Creepy. My name is Elise. And my name's Courtney. Join us every week as we discuss our favorite true crime and paranormal stories. From A to Z. Thank you so much to everybody who has tuned in to this season and to our reoccurring friends over in Berlin and Singapore and the America. We see you and we appreciate you. So thank you so much for listening every week. Yes, we love seeing the downloads. We would also love to see some five-star reviews. Um and listener stories. If you guys want to send a story in for us to read on air, email us at c4creepy at gmail.com. Totally. Also, if you guys don't have your own paranormal or true crime stories, you can always send us folklore and tales from your area. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. So please, please, please send us all of your stories and on to the show. Okay, so this week I'm going to be cheating. I am pairing E with Edmonton. Okay. okay. Edmonton is considered a cheat in my opinion because that is Courtney and I's hometown. Um, it's located in Alberta, Canada. Small cop out. <laughs> but also, we find some pretty bizarre crimes here. So have you heard of this one before? I have. Actually, I'll, I'll get to it. Do a little blurb about Edmonton first. Okay. Okay. So, with a metropolitan population of just under 1.5 million people, so that's Edmonton and surrounding area. Um, Edmonton is the fifth largest city in Canada. There should be no surprise that it was found in 2021 that Edmonton's crime severity index was 97.45. So, that crime severity index was founded in 2009, and it is determined by tracking crime reported by the police and adding, like, a quantifiable weight to each crime. So we're not, like, it does track petty crimes, but also the more severe ones, and it quantifies. It's like a weight system. Pretty much, yeah. So that's kind of crazy. The highest rank, though, that same year was Lethbridge, Alberta, with the an index of 128.65. So, like, well, it's not the highest. You can tell that's a very high number still. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, so as far as murder go, um, 2011 was the deadliest year to live in Edmonton, with a total of 53 homicides reported. Was that the year that we had 10, like, within the first week of January? Yeah. Okay, yep. Um, according to Statistics Canada, 2021 was a very close second, though, with 51 murders reported. Holy shit. The furthest back the collective data goes is just to the year 1981. So, obviously, there's probably paper records, but online, mm-hmm. as far back. So, from 1981 to 2021, there have been 1,276 homicides in Edmonton. It's a tie for the lowest amount of homicides, which is 19. And those were the years 1985, 1991, and 2000. Since the year 2004, the number of homicides per year has not been under 27. Wow. Which is kind of wild. Yeah. I get that there's places in the world that have bigger populations that do have higher homicide rates. But, like, we're talking about you know, a million people every year, that number goes up. Yeah. And that's just homicide. We're not talking about, like, assaults, battery, rape. Um, just people killing other people. Just people killing other people. Fucking catalytic converter thefts. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Can't park at Sobeys without being afraid somebody's going to steal your catalytic converter. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. So... Just homicides. That's a little concerning. Yeah. So there was actually a book written titled Deadmonton, Crime <laughs> Stories from Canada's Murder City. Um, that was published in 2016, and it was written by Pamela Roth, who is a former journalist with the Edmonton Sun. 
Okay. In her book, Roth interviews a number of families whose lives were forever altered by the death of their loved ones. Mm-hmm. So it looks really cool. I think I'm going to see if I can buy it to give it a read just because that's so interesting and so great getting the victim's perspective story out. Yeah, totally. Okay. Well, and like, I don't hear a whole lot about these murders getting solved. So the case that I'm covering was solved. Oh, good. A couple other murders for sure. So there was one that I was considering covering, but like it involved a child and it was very famous, but like I'm not, I don't do well with children cases, Mm -hmm. but the perpetrator was caught in that case as well. Okay. So that was good, but you're right. There's a lot where either they're not found or at least it's not published that they're found. So I remember a few years ago, um, there was a bunch of women being found in, like, shopping carts, Mm -hmm. and they never found that guy. Mm -mm. So, super scary. Mm -hmm. No, there's there's been a few really, like, scary ones where you don't want to walk outside at night. I don't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right, so on to my case. So, another slight cheat. Uh, this one, this murder took place just outside of Edmonton, but I do remember it growing up. Like, this was a very well-publicized case. Um, this was one of those stories, I think every generation has them, where a murder affects an entire town. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, like I said, I remember the news coverage of this case as a child, and... I think it was one that really shook the city. I'm sure you've heard of it, but I don't know if it, like, I think you have. Okay. So I'm going to be covering the case of Nina Portapat. Okay. I'm going to be honest, it's kind of difficult to get through, but I feel like it's a case that should be covered. So starting with Nina's childhood. Her mother, Keisha Atkinson, gave an in-depth interview with an organization known as NWAC, or Native Women's Association of Canada. Mm -hmm. NWAC documents and shares stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls with the help of their families. Nina Louise Portapat was born October 3, 1991, in Edmonton, Alberta. She was the fourth of six siblings. Nina has been described by her mother as a happy, inquisitive infant who grew into a strong, outspoken child. She was known to love the arts, with a talent for dancing, drawing, and writing. With striking looks, Nina had ambitions to work as either a model or an actress. Okay. So, she had a good future. She did, yeah. Okay. Yeah. When she was eight years old, her family moved to the Dunlass area of Edmonton. That is a neighborhood northwest of the city located in the Castle Downs area. Like Castle Downs? Yeah. Okay. Like over there. Okay. Interesting. I was trying to relate you, but. <laughs> Jesus. So, as this retelling of Nina's life was mostly retold by her mother, I feel like there could be more to the story. Um, her version is that it was claimed that, sorry, it is claimed by Keisha that around this time, Nina would try to scare her by staying out late after dark. How old was she? So around this time, she would have been between like 10 to 11, maybe 12. Okay. Young. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it was also around this time that Nina started to tell people that she was being abused by her family. So the family was investigated by social services, and Nina was kept with them. Okay. Okay. The family moved to the west side of Edmonton not long after. So, like I said, there's definitely reports, but there's no concrete evidence of abuse in the family, so it's... I'm not... He said, she said, it is what it is. I'm just reporting what I found. After this move, Nina started to pursue her dream of becoming a model, and would ask her mom to set up meetings with local modeling and acting agencies. 
As a member of the Boys and Girls Club of Edmonton, Nina performed a number in a number of their plays, and that helped her boost her confidence to continue to reach out to become a professional. In 2004, Nina won a local modeling contest. Nina was a social girl who enjoyed spending time with her friends. That's why, on March 30th, 2005, when Nina said she was going to spend the weekend with her friend, her mother did not mind. This was also during spring break, so it's not like there was school. Um, it should have been okay. Uh, yeah, like I'm thinking back to when I was 12, like... So right now she's 13 years old, um, so 13-year-old going to hang out with her friend. Her best friend is a 15-year-old girl known in the media as KB. Courtney. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Nina, who is now 13, had decided to spend some time at West Edmonton Mall. Ooh. This was April 3rd. It was while the two girls were at the arcade in the mall that they were approached by 19-year-old Joseph Wesley Labukin. I'm sorry, do you remember when there was an arcade in West Edmonton Mall? I think there still is. No, there isn't. Now it's the uh, the rec room. Is it? Yeah. I thought that there was one like near the food court in that one little area. No. Last time I was there, there was no arcade. I was also thinking maybe there was, like, something in um, Galaxy Lounge. Like, wasn't there some games in there at one point? Yep. Yep, that is still there. Okay, so maybe that's what they're talking about as well. Maybe. So th- there was a different location that this could be happening in. Okay. That is a very big moment. Ugh, I know. <laughs> Couldn't pay me to go there now. Couldn't pay me to park there. No. <laughs> So, Joseph Labukane was 19 years old, and accompanying him was a 17-year-old unnamed girl. And they invited these two younger teenagers to join them at a bush party. Red flag. Yes. So, this is a very well-known activity for youths. Yes, it is. And so, the two girls accepted the invitation. Not long after, around 2.27 a.m., the girls were in a 34-year-old man's car with Labu Kane and three other youths. Now, so in this case, like, it's got such huge, like, points. Like, I'm going to take them all I can, but I cannot imagine seven people fitting into, like, a little 1991 Ford Tempo comfortably. I guess a tiny little car. No, they're sitting on laps. Yeah, that would not be a comfortable ride. No. Okay. <laughs> And just a quick disclaimer here, um, in Canada with the youth with the Youth Criminal Justice Justice Act, those accused or are found guilty of a crime between the ages of twelve and seventeen have laws in place to keep their identity private. Mm-hmm. So that's with that said, what we know about the three minors that accompanied Labu King and Frisco, the thirty-four year old, was that there were two females identified later in court documents as FB and DT, and one other male known as MW. The minors involved in this case were 16 to 17 years old. There are multiple sources that do name SB and MW. However, the identity of DT is only known in the media as Buffy. Okay. Because that was... Later on, she was the only one that was actually charged as a minor, so her identity has been kept secret. Okay. I'm not going to be naming names either. Like, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. Like I said, if you are very, very curious, the information is out there, but I will not be doing that at this time. Okay. Earlier on April 3rd, this group of five people with the widely varied ages, which is another thing I just want to talk about really quickly. Why is a group of teenagers hanging out with a 34-year-old man? Uh, this is going to be like really putting them in a box. But it seems like the only reason that like a 34-year-old would hang out with teenagers has nothing good. Drugs, alcohol, and other shenanigans. <laughs> There's absolutely no reason for a 34-year-old to be hanging out with 16-year-olds. No, not at all. No. No. So, like... Nothing good. That's just a red flag. 
Mm-hmm. Probably not a great idea. It is claimed by the group that Lovey... Sorry, it was... I was When I was doing my research, I was pronouncing it differently than how it was being said in the videos that I later watched. Mm-hmm. Just kind of get it right. Okay. So, Labukin was the ringleader of this plot, and... Labukin was 19, right? Yes, okay. Joseph Labukin was 19 years old. Um, and that he had said that he would like to find someone to kill. So this is pre-planned. So you just wake up one morning you're like, yeah, I'm going to kill somebody. And then I'm going to tell my, like, four BFFs and we're going to go hunting. I fucking slap you. <laughs> like, if you came up to me and you're like, I feel like murdering somebody today. I'm like, bitch, you need help. Hey, I feel like there's a difference between being like, I'm so fucking mad I could rage and, like, just snap and kill someone versus... You know what I feel like doing today? I would knock you on your ass. I'm not even kidding. Like, <laughs> what kind of friend would support that bullshittery? Right. Well, and like, there was one article that said that Buffy was dealing with, um, like, methamphetamine addictions. So, I'm sure the rest of the group had their vices as well. Mm-hmm. So, probably just not making the best life choices. Mm-hmm. Following someone who says that murder is a great pastime, like... Okay. Either way, we know that this is not going to end well. No. Okay. So apparently no one opposed this idea, so the group went to West Edmonton Mall looking for a potential victim. They saw Nina, and they assigned her as the chosen one. Ew. Briscoe drove the group to the Edmonton Springs Golf Course an isolated golf course located west of Edmonton. Once parked, S.B. slipped a wrench up her sleeve and another member grabbed a sledgehammer from the trunk. The group began to walk into the golf course and search for the party. During the walk, S.B. hit Nina in the back of the head with a wrench after being instructed by Lubukin to do so. Frightened, Nina cried out in pain and ran to Lubukin for comfort. As witnessed by Nina's friend, Lubukin whispered something something to the 13-year-old girl that terrified her. Nina broke away from him and pled him not to do what he told her he was going to do to her. Briscoe, who had been waiting by the car, heard the girl and joined the group, grabbed her and told Nina to shut up as she screamed for help. At this point, KB, Nina's friend, was led back to the car by the 17-year-old girl. Before leaving, Lubukin threatened KB. He said that he would kill her with his belt if she screamed or did anything. KB did not witness what happened to Nina, but there are multiple accounts from those who are involved with this attack. Here's where it gets graphic. The account is as follows. Nina was held down by members of the group while Labukin raped her. Immediately after, she was further held down while M.W. also raped her. As Nina was trying to dress herself afterwards, the assault continued. D.T., so Buffy, had been carrying a throwing knife with her, and Labukin instructed her to slash Nina's throat with it. During the autopsy, the medical examiner noted that knife wounds were superficial and that they had barely broken skin. This was not the end of the brutality, however, as Nina was repeatedly struck by a sledgehammer in the head. Oh my god. Yeah. According to the medical examiner, Nina had been struck in the right side of her head 15 times from blows from the hammer. The medical examiner further said that the blows would have rendered Nina unconscious almost immediately. However, even if she had received medical help right away, it was unlikely she would have survived. The group left the golf course, sorry, the group left her body on the golf course where it was found a day later. But, like, it got into a lot more detail that I chose to leave out. Mm-hmm. And... I just cannot imagine that poor 13-year-old girl. Like... That's disgusting. Right. And they just let her friend go? They didn't let her go. They kept... So it was... 
the 17-year-old girl led KB back to the car. So those two were together. They were waiting for the rest of them to join them. Oh. But, like, I don't... There's also conflicting things about KB, whether she would have been in on it or... It just, it seems very weird that they would just let her go. Well, like, and they, when asked, like, what happened, like, she wasn't the chosen one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, so the pack entered the car and drove to a motel that Briscoe had, and all except MW stayed there. The following morning, DT claimed that Labukin asked the group, group if they wanted to see something. He pulled out a thread bag from the fridge and revealed a pinky finger. Lebukin elaborated, saying that the finger was from his last victim, who he described as a prostitute. So KB's mother had called Picha, Mia's mother, days after the girls had gone missing. Okay, so KB is still missing. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. I, I thought they would just, like, take her home kind no, of thing. No, 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 she did not. Actually, this is where it kind of gets a little wild. So, KB's mother had told Pija that her daughter had told her that she was staying at Nina's house. The mother told Pija not to be concerned as KB was known to disappear for days at a time, but always turned up okay. Which, she's a 15-year-old girl. How are you not keeping track of your daughter? Right? Like, 15 is too young to be gallivanting for days. Yeah. With, like, no check-ins. Like, call. Like, you cannot just go missing as a 15-year-old. Ideally not. So, two days after that phone call, Keisha saw on the news that the body of a girl that matched her daughter's description was found. Keisha contacted police, who confirmed the following day that the girl found was Mia. Oh, my God. So, Katie stayed with that group who killed her friend Nina for days afterwards. KB testified that she was told by the group that they had just beat Nina up and made her run home naked. Which still, I don't think I'd want to associate with someone who would beat up my friend and then make them run home naked. Like, either way, that's not good. No. So she claimed that she did not know about Nina's death until afterwards. KB was found by her mother in West Edmonton Mall days after the attack, but it is alleged that she did not want to go willingly with her mother. KB's mother was forced to flag down an officer who handcuffed the 15-year-old. When asked why she fought, KB couldn't answer. So that's where it gets into, was this girl in on the death of her friend? Mm -hmm. Or like, there's it's what appears to be more than what's going on. I, it's weird. Yeah. Okay. So all five people were charged with kidnapping, aggravated assault, and first-degree murder in connection to Nina's murder. Labukin was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. What is wild, though... He's probably out now. We'll get to it. Okay. What is wild is that Briscoe and Labukin were jointly tried by a judge alone, and Briscoe was originally acquitted of all charges. How? So, basically, the judge said that there was not enough evidence that Briscoe knew for sure that they were planning to kill someone. Oh. But, obviously, he was lying. So... In 2008, the court appealed the decision, and in 2012, Briscoe was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for the convictions of first-degree murder, sexual assault, and kidnapping. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. But could you, like, I could not believe that. They're like, he just drove the car. He didn't know that they were actually planning on killing a girl. Like, you held her down and told her to be quiet. What? Yeah. How is that not knowing? Yeah. Or, like, not stopping. Yeah. No, it's all worldly fucked up. Okay, so as for the youths, M.W. pled guilty to first-degree murder and was actually a witness for the Crown against his fellow group members. Oh. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 10 years. 
Esty was convicted of manslaughter, kidnapping, and aggravated sexual assault and was, an, and was sentenced to 12 years, 9 with time served. Both N.W. and Esty were tried as adults. D.T. was the only member to be charged as a minor. D.T., known as Buffy, was sentenced to four years in custody, followed by three years of supervised probation. Wow. And I should notice that, like, these seem very, like, varied, but the times of all of these trials and sentencing for each member of the group took place in different years. I don't know why. That's wild. I thought so, too. I thought it was very strange, especially with the first case. Sorry, with the first trial, the two adults being jointly tried. That, like, everything about, like, this court system right here seemed very weird to me. Mm-hmm. Especially, like, with that judge being the... Like, it's not like there was a jury presiding over that court either. It was the judge alone that made the call that, oh, he didn't know what was going on. So I um it's almost sounded to me like he was in on it or like may have been paid off. Or like didn't care enough. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know. But it, yeah, either way, like something was up. I'm really glad that It was appealed and Yeah. And he was actually found guilty for being involved. Mm-hmm. That's disgusting. Well, let's get back to that finger. So Labukin had showed the finger off, the pinky finger to the group the day after. That finger belonged to Ellie Mae Meyer, a 33-year-old sex worker who had been murdered by Labukin and Briscoe on April 1st, 2005. So two days before killing Nina, they had murdered. Oh, good God. Okay. So, like, just two days. Espy had witnessed the death of Ellie and was able to testify against both men. Wow. Uh, so I had read, and this was just one account that I didn't originally include it, but Espy was supposedly the uh, girlfriend to Briscoe, Michael Briscoe. 17, Ew. 34. Once again, like I said, it was just the one mm-hmm. article that said it, but like either way. As a woman, how could you sit and watch a man murder another woman and rape another woman? Like, how? I don't understand it. The only way that I could maybe understand it is if your life is also in imminent risk from that man. Yeah. But I agree. I don't know how you come to terms with that. I, I don't well, know how you sit by and... And if it's true that two days earlier she watched someone... Else. I would personally do everything in my power to make that girl in the arcade, Nina, mm-hmm. not come with me. Mm-hmm. I would not help lure people. No. I think that's really gross. Mm-hmm. No, it's awful. Um... So Ellie had also been found beaten to death, and her body had been left in a farmer's fields. Unfortunately, her body was not discovered until May, uh, May 6th, the same year. So she was found months after her death and after the death of Nina Cornipat. Shit. Sorry, what month were they in? So it was April when she was murdered. Okay. So I was thinking, who goes to a bush party in the middle of winter? But if it was April, okay. It could have been a nice year. I didn't check all the patterns. I don't blame you. (laughs) Um, So now to end this sad case, uh, PJ had become uh, an advocate for victims' family resources. During this time, PJ struggled with finding proper support, both emotional and financial, it was her desire that there should be a specific entity whose sole purpose was to fo- provide the resources to a victim's family. Pija also founded the Nina's Dream Trust Fund, which is a scholarship given to youth pursuing the arts. Pija Atkinson died on December 18, 2015, from complications due to cancer. No. Holy <laughs> shit. Yeah. That's... That was the case of Nina Cornipot. And like I said, like I remember being like 10 years old 
hearing on the news, like, daily updates regarding, like, finding her body and the people involved. And I remember her mom being on the news so much. Like, I could probably, like, without, like, seeing a name, I could probably recognize her. Oh, wow. Because, like, that's how much, like, how publicized this case was. Mm Mm-hmm. You know what's also really kind of bothering me? KB's mom. Mm -hmm. If my kid went missing, like, for more than a day, Mm -hmm. I would be calling the police being like, my daughter's missing. Check in. I definitely agree. And I think there's something to be said, too. If this was a reoccurring problem, maybe her mom already had. You know what I mean? If she mm-hmm. was a teenager that was known to go missing for days at a time, maybe even if she had called the police this time, they wouldn't have taken her seriously if she previously had. Yeah. Right? Like, they could be like, she's a runaway, you know she's going to come back, you've probably been through this brick and roll before. Mm-hmm. Let's, one of the shitty things that happened with these kids that think that they're older than they are, that... Mm-hmm. want to do whatever they want to do and parents try to parent and yeah. I don't know all around is just an awful example if you trust the wrong people like what can happen if you trust the wrong people any adult over the years of 20 years of age hanging out with teenagers mm-hmm. red fucking flag people mm-hmm. I'm sorry my PSA. <laughs> Hot take. Hot take. It's creepy. If you're 30 year old, years old hanging out with 17 year old, not okay. Well, they picked up a 13 year old. A 13 year old and a 15 year old. Not okay. No. And there is debate too, I should mention, if um, maybe no, knew these people beforehand. There is a possibility of that, too, if she's, like, spending a lot of time at the mall where they would also frequent. I would almost bet that. Mm-hmm. Like, just speculation here. It, it is just speculation. But knowing myself, I would never go with a bunch of strangers in a car to a bush party. Unless you had a friend that could maybe vouch for them. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Like, safety 101. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. Well then. So, but seriously, or E. We're on E. <laughs> My E is for exorcism. Ooh. And I got all this information from allthatsinteresting.com, theguardian.com, and nypost.com. Awesome. So, today we will be discussing the exorcism of Roland Doe. Okay. In 1949... Priests performed an exorcism on a boy referred to as Roland Doe in a chilling ordeal that became the inspiration for The Exorcist. Oh, wow. The, the actual uh, mm-hmm. movie? Yeah. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah. In the Belnor neighborhood of St. Louis, Louis, in the Belnor neighborhood of St. Louis, Missouri, sits a beautiful colonial style house on Roanoke Drive first problem. Well, I was just going to say, like, this is a very ominous beginning. (laughs) I know. That was once home, that was once the home of a boy named Roland Doe. It looked normal on the outside, with an all brick exterior, white shutters, huge trees, and neatly manicured bushes. Mm -hmm. Yet one of the most extraordinary horror sites turned urban legend in America's history transformed this house into a landmark for the macabre. Mm -hmm. The story begins in the late 1940s with a German-American family. Their 13-year-old boy, believed to be named Roland Hunker, or Roland, or Ronald Hunkler, also known as Roland Doe, was despondent over the loss of his beloved Aunt Harriet. Harriet was a spiritualist who had taught him many things, including how to use a Ouija board. You know what? I do believe in teaching kids, like, safe practices. I mean, 
Yes, maybe not in my house. No, and maybe not at 13. No. But, like, if you can teach a kid how to use proper spiritual things, we could have avoided this whole fucking situation. Just saying. In early January 1949, shortly after Harriet's death, Ronald Hunkler began to experience strange things. He heard scratching sounds coming from the floors and walls of his room. Water dripped inexplainably from pipes and walls. Most troubling of all, that his mattress would suddenly move. Ew. Mm Mm-hmm. Disturbed, Ronald's family sought the help of every expert they knew. The family consulted doctors, psychiatrists, and their local Lutheran minister, but they were no help. The minister suggested that the family seek the assistance of the Jesuits. Okay. Father E. Albert Hughes, the local Catholic priest, asked his superior's permission to perform an exorcism on the boy in late February of 1949. Sorry, I'm just really confused. I just, sorry, I might have missed something. Um, so far, things have just been happening to Roland. Yes. Like, he hasn't shown any real signs of being possessed by anything. Yes. So that is correct. Yes. Okay. Mattress moving, random dripping, sounds and scratching. We're not speaking in tongues. We're not nothing like that yet. Nope. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I didn't miss Yeah. He's just living his best haunted life. Okay. 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 I just wanted to double check that. Like, I... We're jumping the gun here a little bit, aren't we? Yeah. Okay. Yes, we are. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. So the Catholic priest asked his superior's permission to perform an exorcism on the boy in late February of 1949, and the church granted Hugh's request. Interesting choice, church. Mm-hmm. For the exorcism, Hugh strapped the boy to the mattress and began his recitations but he had to stop the rite when ronald broke off a piece of the mattress spring and slashed the priest across his shoulders leaving the exorcism unfinished uh-oh like so you open this doorway and you couldn't finish it yep okay mm-hmm. okay so now he's possessed we went there <laughs> all right the reverend luther schultz Hunkler's family minister eventually wrote to the Parapsychopy Laboratory at Duke University in North Carolina in March 1949 and explained how chairs moved with Hunkler and one threw him out of it and his bed shook whenever he was in it. Hmm. So we just took a small problem and made it a little bit bigger. A little bit from the sounds of it. Schulz also explained how the family's floors were scarred from the sliding of heavy furniture and how a picture of Christ on the wall shook whenever Hunkler was near. I'm sorry, can you imagine just having that effect on stuff around you? Just like, I walk in your room and the sound of the painting. <laughs> yep, right? Yeah. Okay, so on one evening, the word Lewis was written on the boy's ribs in deep red scratches. Mm-hmm. The family took this as they needed to go to St. Louis. Okay. Yeah. So next, there was some question about the time of departure, and the word Saturday was written on the boy's hip. In scratches. Yes. I feel like this is... Why are they entertaining this demon that is scratching into their son? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. If it said Louis, I I would not be asking, when should we go? Right. What in the world? As to the length of time the mother and the boy should stay in St. Louis, another message printed on the boy's chest. 3.5. Hours, days, minutes. They took it as three and a half weeks. Weeks? (laughs) So the printing always appeared without any motion on the part of the boy's hands. This indicated to Ronald's mother that the family needed to go to St. Louis where he was to be treated for demonic possession. It seemed that whatever force was writing the words was in favor of making the trip to St. Louis. So you're going to give it what it wants. Yeah. Obviously. Solid. Yep. So a cousin of the family was attending St. Louis University at the time of Ronald's struggles. 
She put the Hunklers in touch with Father Walter H. Halloran and Reverend William Bodern. After consulting with the university's president, these two Jesuits agreed to perform an exorcism on young Ronald with the help of several assistants. Okay. Well, at least there's more people involved this time. Yeah. So, you know, if somebody gets hit with a spring, then... We're not just out. Yeah. Yeah. So, William Bodern conducted more than 20 exorcism rituals on Hunkler. In the span of three months, writing in his diary on the 10th of March, 1949, Bodern noted that Hunkler entered a trance-like state as 14 witnesses watched during one of his exorcisms. Wow. 14 seems like a lot of witnesses, though. It does. But how are you supposed to teach? Why do I... I don't know. I've got problems with this case. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Everything seems off. Like, I just don't follow their logic with anything. So, like, first we're just going to jump the gun and do an exorcism. Yeah. Then we're going to do it alone, open the door. And now that we're for sure that this kid is now possessed after the first initial exorcism, we're just going to invite everybody else in there. What happens if the spirit gets, like, ousted into one of these... Yeah. So another thing that I noticed while I was looking this up was that the early stage of this possession, there wasn't a lot on it. Um, Like between Harriet dying and the exorcism, there was no real accounts. There was nothing like that until we started going to this university, whereas Bodern had like diaries of it. So a lot of the information I got was from his diaries and those notes and like the witnesses. Mm-hmm. Whereas the first guy's like, eh, he's possessed. Let's do it. Let's do it. So at least he's following more of a um, scientific method by keeping notes and. Yes. Whereas the first guy didn't. No. So I think that might also be part of the problem is like, we have no fucking clue what was happening besides like scratching on the floor yeah. Which, in all honesty, I would just ignore thinking it was a cat. <laughs> yeah. Or a dog. <laughs> right? So, I think we also really need to think about that. True. True. But Bodern did his research, okay? <laughs> so, um, 14 witnesses watched during one of his exorcisms. There was a scratching which beat out a rhythm of marching soldiers. Second class relic of St. Margaret Mary was thrown on the floor. Um, the safety pins. Oh, the safety pin was open, but no human head had touched the relic. And Ronald stared up in fright when the relic was thrown down. Bowden wrote. Okay. He's just throwing shit. Yeah. Yep. Um, amid, amid these bizarre happenings, Bowden and Halloran, according to their reports, noticed a pattern in Ronald's behavior. He was calm and normal during the day, but at night, after settling in for bed, he would exhibit strange behaviors, including screaming and wild outbursts. Hmm. Ronald would also enter a trance-like state and started making sounds in a guttural voice. The priest also said that they saw objects mysteriously flying in the boy's presence and noted that he would react violently when he saw any sacred object presented by the attending Jesuits. Interesting. Mm-hmm. See? He did his research, mm-hmm. and he did his homework. Good for him. <laughs> like, this is why you keep trapped, so we don't have to speculate. <laughs> right. Like, I am more inclined to be like, okay, an exorcism may have been necessary here than water gripping. Yeah. <laughs> like, fuck off. So, um, all these details from the true story of The Exorcist did make it into the film, but there was more that did not make it into the film. Like what? At one point during the weeks-long ordeal, Bodern reportedly saw an X appear in scratches on Ronald's chest, which the priest believed signified the number 10. In another incident, a pitchfork-shaped pattern of red lines moved from the boy's thigh and snaked down towards his ankle. 
These types of things happened every night for more than a month. Once a red X appeared on Ronald's chest. Oh, shit. I wrote that twice. <laughs> so just a lot more scratches, a lot shenanigans. I wonder why he hits the number 10. Does he think like he's possessed by 10 demons? Or if, like, you know what I mean? Like, I wonder why he thought that it was the number 10. Personally, I would have thought, like, oh, X marks the spot. I'm in <laughs> this boy. <laughs> yeah, but X is also the Roman numeral for a 10. No, I get it. I just wonder, like, why he was, like... Why he went there? Yeah. Like, X's have a lot of different... Meanings. meanings. So I find it interesting that his first thought was number 10. X could also mean marked for death. Could be. Like, there's a lot of different possibilities. I'm just, I enjoy his interpretation as a Freudian thought. Mm-hmm. I agree. So, these two priests never gave up as they continued the exorcism night after night. Mm-hmm. On the evening of March 20th, the exorcism reached an unhealthy new level. Ronald urinated all over his bed and began shouting and cursing at the priests. Now, Ronald's parents had had enough. They took him to Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis for a more serious treatment. Okay. Which, that's gonna be hard. Yeah. So finally, on April 18th, a miracle occurred in Ronald's room at Alexian Brothers. It was the Monday after Easter, and Ronald awoke with seizures. He yelled at the priests, saying that Satan would always be with him. The priest laid holy relics, crucifixes, medals, and rosaries on the boy at 10.45 p.m. That evening, an attending priest called on St. Michael to expel Satan from Ronald's body. They shouted at Satan, saying that St. Michael would battle him for Ronald's soul. Seven minutes later, Ronald came out of his trance and said, he's gone. The boy recounted how he had a vision that St. Michael vanquished Satan on a great battlefield. According to Bodern and Holleran, the strange occurrences and behaviors ceased after that. Ronald Hunkler went on to live a completely normal life from that moment forward. That's amazing. I wonder, I just wonder if all of the exorcisms were necessary then, if this vision of St. Michael is what triumphed over this demon possessing him. Right. Like, maybe... They were, like, trying to point the way. But, like, it sounds like this vision did more than these priests did in, what, three months? Yeah. Huh. I... I know. Okay. I really enjoyed that case. Hold on. There's still more. Oh, there's more. Okay. Let's hear it. Yeah. So, Ronald Hunkler went on to become a NASA engineer who patented a special technology to make space shuttle panels resistant to extreme heat, helping the Apollo mission of 1960s that put U.S. astronauts on the moon in 1969. His identity had been kept under wraps since a series of exorcisms he he underwent as a young teenager. For decades, he was known only by the pseudonym Ronald Doe, and his identity had been something of an open secret among the community of Jesuits, who were close to the priests who participated in his exorcism. Um, and a handful of academics who reporters, oh, and a handful of academics and reporters who studied the phenomena beginning in the mid-1970s. But unfortunately, he did live in fear of people finding out the truth. And according to a 29-year-old companion of Hunkler, He was always on edge about his colleagues at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center finding out that he was the inspiration for The Exorcist. Hunkler retired from NASA in 2001 after nearly 40 years with the space agency. Wow. That has to be awful. Like, living in fear of your identity, being found out. Yeah. Especially being, like, the inspiration for... Like, The Exorcist, when it was a movie, was one of the most pivotal horror movies of the time. Like, it changed yep. the genre. Yep. 
Like, it's wild. Mm-hmm. So that is the exorcism of Rolando. And yeah, I really wish that people who are performing exorcisms, I wish that you had to catalog. I, yeah, you should have to. Maybe now you don't, but, well, or maybe now you do, and back yeah. then you didn't. But I feel too, like, exorcisms are only performed, like, not so willy-nilly, so. There's a lot. I, there are. But mostly it, so when I look for them, mostly they pop up as, like, crime. Yeah. Because, um... X person died of suffocation during an exorcism, Mm -hmm. but there isn't the story of why he was being exorcised in the first place. Yeah. Like I said, I think that there, from my understanding, there is a lot more um, medical studies that are done to the person in question, like going for psychiatric evaluations to make sure that they're not suffering from bipolar or yeah. yeah some sort of mental illness um you know going through making sure they're not just suffering from like seizures like they have to get a medical workup first to rule out any possible medical problems before they can look to the spiritual yeah side of things yeah definitely which makes good sense because as you <laughs> said a lot of these people die just die yes so like, I had a list of probably 30 exorcisms for, like, to go through, mm-hmm. and it took me probably seven of them to find a case where there was actual substance behind why we did the exorcism. Mm-hmm. So, it's really sad that there's so many, but there's so little information on them. Mm-hmm. But I am glad that, you know, um, people performing exorcisms are held recount are held accountable mm-hmm. if somebody dies. So, yes. plus side. That is a plus side, yes. Well, thanks for watching. Yes, thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to See Is For Creepy. We put out weekly episodes every Tuesday going through the creepy alphabet. Check out our website at acast.com slash C is for creepy or on Facebook at C is for creepy podcast or on Instagram at C for creepy podcast. If you have any questions, concerns or suggestions, please email us at C for creepy at gmail.com. Artwork done by Alexis Daly. Check out her work at L-E-X-X-A underscore artwork on Instagram. See you next week. Bye.